0: You guys can be seated this morning. It's good to be with you all again. If I haven't said hello to you, good morning. If you want to open up in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you could also put a finger in um, 1 Kings chapter 9. But we'll be looking at both of those passages this morning. So we've been going through this series that we're calling Christ in all the Scriptures. And what we've endeavored to do over the past Four weeks and now the fifth week is to see the overarching story of the Bible. That the Bible is not just a collection of random stories, moral tales about how to live a better life, but it is one unified plan of redemption for God's people, fulfilling in the, the promises and the work of Christ. That it's not just about us, it's not a Bible, ma- it's, the Bible is not a story mainly about us, but it's about what God will do through the person and work of His Son, the Lord. Jesus Christ. And as we've gone through this series, we've seen this one overarching plan of salvation that God has promised to save a people for Himself by what Christ has done, and He's revealed that all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This promise of God's grace that even though Adam failed the covenant that God gave to him, the covenant of works, that he was supposed to do what God said, he was supposed to obey God's law perfectly in the Garden of Eden... Adam failed to do this. He he sinned against God. He ate of the tree that God said not to eat. And in doing that, he fell, and all humanity in him fell from their state of holiness, and righteousness. But God in His grace promised this covenant of grace by which He would save His people in the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And we've gone through these different covenants. We looked at the Noahic covenant, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and they're all pointing us forward to this great reality. We saw in the Noaic covenant, this covenant of God's common grace, that God, even though Humanity is wicked, even though men deserve judgment. God has promised to delay his judgment, delay um, the judgment that man deserves, and preserve his creation in this promise of the Noahic covenant. That now creation and history itself is the backdrop on which God's plan of redemption will play itself out. We saw that in the Noahic covenant. Then we move to the Abrahamic covenant, where we saw this promise that God would create a people, the people of Israel, and that this people would be given a land, they would be made into a great nation, and that the Christ would ultimately come from them, the one that would justify the nations. We saw last week in the Mosaic covenant, or the old covenant, that God gives a land and laws to this people. He says, you will be my people, and he gives laws to this people in the nation of Israel. And we also saw how these point us to the need for perfect holiness, that no man can enter God's presence, no person could enter the tabernacle without a perfect sacrificial substitute. That's the only way to enter the presence of a holy God for sinful people. And so as we've been going through this, and as we'll see this morning, all of these covenants serve the purpose of God's plan of redemption, they're they're echoing back to what God did in the garden and they're pointing us forward to what God will do in the new covenant with Christ. And so that's what we've been working through these past couple weeks just to bring everybody up to speed. And so hopefully we've seen over these last four weeks is that the Bible is not only covenantal, it's not only structured by means of covenant, but it's also centered on Christ and what he does through redemption. And we'll see this week We'll look at the, no, the not the Noahic, the Davidic covenant. We'll look at the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David, that God promises to this people that they will have a king, that this king will be one that rules the nations, that he will be one that sits on the throne, and he will be one that represents the people to God. And God to the people. He will rule over these people. He will subdue their enemies. He will bring them rest in the land. He will build the temple, the house of God on the earth. This is what we'll see in the Davidic covenant. But ultimately, what we'll see is that at one level, this promise is fulfilled in a temporary earthly way. But we'll see how this points us to what Christ will do in his kingly office, fulfilling the Davidic covenant and bringing salvation for all that he has won, not in the earthly kingdom, but in the heavenly new creation. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you want to look with me at Second Samuel chapter seven, and then we'll go to First Kings, and we'll read the passage there and then um, I'll pray for us, we'll read the passage, we'll study God's Word, um, and we'll go from there. So, um, this is the Word of the Lord. We'll begin at verse 8 in 2 Samuel. I keep saying chamuel, that's not a a book of the Bible. (laughs) Samuel, chapter uh, 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I will be with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more." And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And here we see really the concentration of what this Davidic covenant is. Verse 12, When your days are fulfilled, he's speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then we see this repeated to David's son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9. We see another kind of layer to this covenant. We begin in verse 3. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Solomon, and said, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, talking about the temple that you have built. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne. But listen to this in verse 6. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commands and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You this morning for Your holy and infallible Word. We thank You for um, these promises that You've given us in Your Word. We pray this morning that You would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Christ more clearly this morning. That as we look to these covenants of the Old Testament, that we would not see something other than Christ, but see Christ in His full, magnificent glory. The One who has done everything that we could not and our only hope of life and salvation. And so this morning, as we look at the Davidic Covenant, pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that you would transform us, Lord, from one degree of glory to the next. We know this is only possible by the work of your Spirit in our souls, and we pray that you would do this by your mercy and grace. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. Amen. So we come to this Davidic covenant. And in many ways, we're coming to sort of the climax of a lot of the Old Testament. And hopefully we'll see that bore out today as we go through these three different points. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. So the first thing we're going to look at is we've got to to bring ourselves up to speed with where we left off last time. That will bring us to point one on our outline, the conquest. We'll look at the conquest That where we left off with the people of Israel last week at the Mosaic Covenant was that after the people of Israel had been given the law at Mount Sinai, we saw that the whole generation that left Egypt was then lost in the wilderness. They were kept from entering the promised land because of their sin. They had broken the covenant, they'd worshipped the golden calf, and therefore they could not enter the promised land. And even Moses himself, the mediator of this covenant, cannot enter the promised land. He can only see it from afar. It has to be Joshua, Yeshua, if you want to say it like that, that leads the people into the promised land of Canaan. And this is what we see in the book of Joshua, that after the people of Israel, after the first generation is lost in the wilderness, we see that this new generation comes and they are the ones that will enter the promised land. And Joshua is the one that will lead them, but they're not only led into the promised land, but they must conquer the enemies of God in the promised land, the Canaanites. They must drive out the enemies from the land. And I think this is a difficult thing for a lot of us to hear. We hear about, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that I think are difficult to understand. And, you know, we could have talked about this last week in the Mosaic covenant. Why are the laws so harsh? You know, why, why is there a death penalty for just blaspheming the name of the Lord? Why does God command the people to drive out the Canaanites? Why does he call for the destruction of the enemies of Israel? And there's a lot of answers to this question. There's a lot of ways that we can talk about this. But one reason is because the kingdom of Israel was supposed to be this holy land where God's presence dwelt. And so where God's presence dwells, there cannot be sin. There cannot be iniquity. And it was meant to picture, in a way, the kingdom of heaven. That in a sense, we could call it the fancy, I won't say the fancy word, oh, well, okay, it's called eschatological intrusion don't worry about that, it's where heaven in a sense breaks into earth and we see these elevated earthly blessings and earthly curses. We could say that the common grace of Noah is sort of suspended for a time where even the smallest sin deserves the greatest punishment and where even the earthly enemies of God's people, the Canaanites that worship idols, are called to be destroyed. And so it's meant to picture heaven. It's meant to picture the final judgment that will happen at the end of all things. And so we see in the book of Judges that Joshua leads the people through the land. They take the land and they are have rest in part. And so in a sense, we can say they're given all the land that Abraham was promised but the, 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 the story turns very quickly in the book of Judges. If you haven't read the book of Judges recently, <laughs> you should read it. <laughs> it is very dark. It's a very dark book about dark, sinful things. We see over and over again that the people failed to drive out all of the Canaanites. They, f- they failed to drive out completely all of the enemies of God. They, there's a partial fulfillment, but there's not a complete driving out of these enemies. And so we see the tribes of Israel disobey. God raises up a judge to bring temporary salvation. And then we see the cycle repeat itself over and over again. God raises up a deliverer. Think of Samson, someone that delivers God's people temporarily, but then the people fail and fall into sin again. And judges end this. Ended, ends with this great statement that the reason for all these things happening, the reason why Israel keeps falling into sin over and over again, the reason it gives is this, that there is no king in Israel because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't following the laws of God. They weren't following his commands. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And We can see many parallels to our day. But for them, there was no king. There was no ruler. There was no leadership. There was no one to bring forth the law of God, represent the people, and lead them in the law of God. And this brings us to what we, what we see and is the big problem of this day. The people have rejected God as their king. They don't want God as their king. They want to make their own rules. They want to live their own way. They want a king like the nations. That's why they pick Saul as their first king. They want someone who's tall and, and has all of these external earthly attributes, not one that is a man after God's own heart. So this is the big problem as we come into the context of this Davidic covenant. And even though Saul, the first king, brings some, um, brings some rest from their enemies, it is ultimately the youngest son of Jesse, the shepherd boy who kills Goliath, that will be the king that drives out all the enemies. And this brings us to our second point this morning, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant that we see here, God's covenant with the man David. And we, so, we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the great Davidic covenant that God promises to David in this covenant that one of his sons, one of his offspring, one of his seed will sit on the throne, that his kingdom will be established forever, that he will bring rest to the people from all their enemies, and that one from David will build the house for the Lord, the temple." This is the Davidic covenant and we read this in what we read in 2nd Samuel there it is again 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13 we see the promises of the Davidic covenant and in many ways a way to simplify this I'm kind of stealing this from someone is to think of this as two thrones God promises to David one of you is going to sit on the throne forever and he promises a second throne that this son of David is going to build for the house of God. So we see these two thrones. One is going to be the throne on which the son of David sits, and the, the other throne is going to be the throne for God, the temple of God, where his presence will dwell. But as we read in 1 Kings chapter 9, we see that there's another element to this covenant. This conditional aspect of the Davidic covenant. We see this summarized in Psalm 132. We see really a summary of the whole covenant. Psalm 132 in verses 11 and 12 says this The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. There's the Davidic promise. That's the promise of one that will sit on the throne. But we see the conditional aspect of this covenant in verse 12. It says, "If your son keeps my covenant," and that's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 9 as well. That there's a sense in which, in this covenant, like the Mosaic covenant, that is conditional. The king must keep the covenant he is to represent the people he's to be a sort of federal head that is representing the people before god he is to keep the laws he is to keep the commandments of god and if he does not as we read in first kings chapter 9 the people of israel will be cut off and we can see now how this is really not some totally new and different thing that god is doing it's a continuation of what god has been doing through abraham and moses What do I mean? We see the same people, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham. We see the same land, the the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land. This is not a different thing with different people in different, different land. This is the same continuation from Abraham, Moses, and now David. But what was true of the people under the works covenant at Sinai is now true of one person, the king of Israel. He is to represent the people. We could summarize it like this. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. What the king does will happen to the people. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. If he obeys, they will be blessed in the land. They will have rest from all their enemies But if he disobeys, they will be cut off, they will be cursed, they will be exiled. And in many ways, this Davidic covenant is really a consolidation of all of the previous covenants into one person. One king, one federal head, this is what we see in the Davidic covenant. That this one person must keep the covenant, he must represent the people, he must follow the law, he must guard the temple. And our our ears, if you've been with us, should should start hearing that echo that we heard last week, this echo of the covenant of works in the garden. That Adam in the garden of Eden is pictured as a prophet, as a priest, but also as a king. He is not only to bring forth the word of God and guard the worship of God, but he is also called to defeat the enemies of God. He's called to crush the head of the serpent and he's called to rule over God's creation. Adam was also called to keep the law. He was called to obtain rest for his people. He was a federal head of all mankind. He was to represent them and he was to guard the garden temple where God dwelt among men. And if he failed the curses of the covenant would fall on them. Same, same language, right? Same idea is coming to bear. And this is the same thing that, a similar thing that we see in the Davidic covenant, that if the king obeys, they will be blessed, and if he does not, they will be cursed. But we're not only seeing this echoing of the covenant of works in the garden, but we're seeing God move the plan of redemption forward, this promise of God's grace in the gospel. And in many ways, we're seeing this promise of God that began as a very broad promise in Genesis 3.15 that one's going to come from Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent. We're seeing it narrowing. And that's what we've seen through all these covenants. We've seen the seed of the woman be narrowed into the one from Abraham, the offspring that will bless the nations. We see in the book of Genesis that this one is going to come not from any tribe of Israel, but from the tribe of Judah. And finally, we learn in the Davidic covenant that the messianic king will be a king, a son of David, the righteous righteous branch from the stump of Jesse. And that this messianic king, this king will represent his people perfectly. He will subdue their enemies. He will bring them rest eternally. And he will build the house of God and dwell with them forever. And so as we've been going through these covenants, It's almost like the eye doctor. I don't know how many of you have been to the eye doctor recently. Some of you have perfect vision. You don't have to worry about it. But if you go there, what do they say? Better one or two? (laughs) Better three or four? And each time with each passing moment there should be clarity that comes. With each lens, they're bringing clarity to your sight. I'm, I'm basically blind without my glasses. And when you go there, each time, each lens brings more and more clarity. And that's what we're seeing in God's covenants. We're seeing more clarity as to what this Messiah, what this Christ will look like. What is the work that he will accomplish? What will be his role? And everything in this Davidic covenant is starting to come into almost crystal clear focus not only will the christ be born from this family but we see the work that he will accomplish as our king and so at the earthly level as you go through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings at the earthly level as we look at the history of David and Solomon and the people of Israel we see this unfold this plan of of what god promised to david in 2nd Samuel we see it unfold we see that David, the man after God's own heart, he is the one that defeats the enemies of God. He clears the land of all the Canaanites. He obtains rest for his people, and we see that he desires to build a house for God, a permanent resting place for the presence of God in place of the movable tabernacle. But we see that it is not David who builds the temple, but the son of David which is what God promised. He is the one that will build the house of the Lord, the temple of God. It is Solomon, the son of David, that completes this temple building project. On Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, the the temple is complete and it is built. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see that the Spirit fills the temple. The glory of God, the visible manifestation of God's presence, fills the temple. The temple has been built according to God's design. It's laden with all this gold and imagery. It houses the Ark of the Covenant. God's Spirit dwells in the temple. This is the the climax of the Old Testament. The presence of God is dwelling with His people, not in a movable tabernacle, but in this permanent temple of God. This is the apex. This This is the kingdom in one sense. The people would have looked out. All their enemies are subdued. They're at rest. They're not fighting anyone. The temple is complete. The Spirit of God dwells there. And the people of that day would have been tempted to think, this is it. <laughs> this is the end, right? This is what we always hope for. This is the final thing. We have the Son of David on the throne, the embodiment of wisdom itself, right? He's given this supernatural gift of wisdom. We have rest from all our enemies. We have this glorious temple where God is dwelling with us. This has to be it. This is the kingdom of God. God's people under God's rule in God's land. They would have been tempted to think this is it. This is all that God promised in the Davidic covenant. And in one sense, it is. It is the fulfillment at the earthly level of all that God promised to Abraham even and to Moses, a great nation in the land of Canaan under the king of Israel. And we see this sense in which the the earthly level has reached its fulfillment But if you look at the book of Kings, first Kings, and you go two chapters after what we read this morning, we see that the whole kingdom falls apart. The whole thing goes to shreds. And this is really the crashing down of the kingdom of Israel. We see in first Kings chapter 11, Solomon, this man of wisdom, this man, the son of David that built the temple, he turns away from the Lord. He has over 700 wives. And in his, in his adultery, he turns away from the Lord. And in his idolatry, he is tempted to serve other gods. And he builds altars to worship the gods of the nations. He mixes the worship of Yahweh with the worship of these idolatrous gods. And this is really, in many senses, the beginning of the end of Israel. They will fall into the same sin that Solomon falls into, as goes the king of Israel. So goes the kingdom. This is what God promised. And this is what we see in the history of Israel. And as you keep going, we see the 12 tribes are divided shortly after that. There's 10 tribes to the north and two to the south. The 10 tribes to the north, the nation of Israel, will be captured by the Assyrians. They'll be destroyed ultimately. Their worship is false. They serve other gods. And they're ultimately cut off. And there's no good kings that come from Israel. The two tribes to the south, the tribes of Judah, are preserved for the sake of the promise, but they too will be exiled because of their disobedience. The temple will ultimately be destroyed, as, as God promised, not one stone left upon another. And even though the temple will be rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah, there is no king in the land of Israel as we get to the end of the Old Testament. And as we come to the prophets of the Old Testament, they are doing two things. They're seeing what's happening. They're seeing what's happening to Israel. Israel has broken the covenant. The kings are not good kings. They have fallen. The kingdom is being separated and divided, and, and everything is, feels like it's not going according to plan. We had this apex moment, and it's all been downhill from here. And the prophets are really coming to the people as God's covenant Prosecutors. They are bringing the covenant to bear on the people. They're saying, You have broken the covenant. You have followed and worshiped other gods, idols. And they scold the people for violating the covenant, the terms of the older Mosaic covenant. But what they also do is they promise this future mercy of God. They promise and point forward to what God will do in the future. That there's going to be this new covenant that God is going to bring, where He will bring mercy and redemption, and a new king that will sit on the throne. And as we go through the Old Testament, and the prophets specifically, they pick up the language that's used in the Davidic covenant, and they use it to describe the promises of the Messiah and this new covenant in Christ. The prophets used the language of the earthly first level to describe what God is going to do in the fulfillment in Christ. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 23. The prophet Jeremiah says this, "...behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "...when I will raise up for David a righteous branch." He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. Jeremiah is looking forward to this day of the Messiah, where all will be made new, and this one will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. And if you wanted to turn here with me, I think this would be worth looking at. The prophet Ezekiel, maybe in the most pointed way, brings us this connection between what God has done in the covenant with David and the promises of God in the new covenant. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel says this in chapter 37, verse 24 through 28. Listen to what he says. This is 500 years after David has died. David is dead. He's buried. He's buried. Ezekiel says this, my servant David shall be king over them. Huh? David's dead. Is he talking about some sort of resurrection of David? What is he talking about here? He says, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules. They should be careful to obey all my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. Listen to this. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place, the house of the Lord, shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We see the prophets are looking forward to this day in the future, When David will be king. (laughs) What? When there will be a righteous branch, there will be one shepherd. This shepherd will cause the people to delight in the law of God. They will have true rest in the land. And in this new covenant of peace, God Himself will dwell in their midst in the temple. And this brings us to our third and final point this morning Christ the King. That what we see in promised in the Old Testament in the Old Testament promise prophets, we see come to full clarity in the person and work of Christ in the New Testament. That what we see in the New Testament is that it is the Son of God in His incarnation that has come as not only the King of the universe, but the promised King of David. What does Matthew 1.1 1, 1 say? Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham, the son of David. That the New Testament is telling us the king is here. The king has come. He has come in the person and work of Christ. Great David's greater son has arrived. The true king of David, the second Adam, who did what Adam failed to do, the first king, he has come. He is the true prophet priest and king of God's people and will fulfill the covenant given to Him by the Father, what we call the covenant of redemption. He is the promised King, the Son of David that would obey the law and represent His people. This is what the New Testament shows us. Christ is coming as the true Son of David. Not Solomon, but Christ Himself. He is the true temple. The One who took on flesh, and as John 1 says, Tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, his very presence amidst his people. One theologian says this G.K. Beale, the special presence of God that was formerly contained in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the temple has now burst forth into the world in the form of the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is where the presence of God dwells on the earth. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we'll get there in several months, John chapter 10, we see Jesus is not only the king of David, the, David's king, he is the good shepherd. He is the one that causes God's people to walk in his ways and follow his statutes. He's come as the true conqueror. Not to conquer the earthly Canaanites, but to deliver God's people from their spiritual enemy, Satan, and their sin. That's what he did in casting out demons. Jesus is showing, I have authority over the spiritual enemies that plague you. I have come not to just cast out demons, but to deliver you from your sins on the cross. He came to establish an, not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one in which righteousness would dwell the kingdom of God. What's he say in John chapter 20? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And what's so striking about this, and as we come to the New Testament, is that Christ comes not as this king in a royal throne. He doesn't come into a palace, but He comes as the lowborn king. He comes born in a manger. Not in a palace, not into royalty, but lowly and meek. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And in His perfect act of obedience, He would go to the cross bearing the sin of all His people, crowned not with a golden crown, but with the crown of of thorns, He would be spit on. He would be mocked. He would be beaten. As we sang this morning, He would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted, undergoing the wrath and curse of God for our sin. What we deserve, what our sin and rebellion deserved, He is the true righteous sufferer. Our sin was placed on Him on the cross. And even though He would suffer and He would die, As our king, just as David prophesied, the grave couldn't hold him. (laughs) He would be resurrected, and in his exaltation, in his glorious resurrection and ascension, he would be exalted as the great king. He would sit down on David's throne, the true throne, the heavenly throne, and in his exaltation and glory at the right hand of the Father. He would sit down in the heavenly Mount Zion, the throne of David that was promised from the beginning. That Adam failed to do, Christ has now done. What Solomon failed to do, Christ has now done. Christ in His sufferings and glory has entered the rest of God. He's poured out His Spirit on His people and He's brought them to the heavenly promised land, the heavenly kingdom, Mount Zion itself. And so what we see here is this glorious picture of what Christ would do. As the glorified Son, as the second Adam, He's done everything that you and I couldn't do. Everything that the kings of Israel failed and failed. Just read the book of Kings. There's just failure after failure. Everything that they failed to do, Christ has done. He has brought us into the land, not earthly Jerusalem, but heavenly Jerusalem. And if you go to the book of Hebrews, it says that our worship now as believers gathered together is not happening in an earthly place, but in the heavenly Mount Zion. That's why our worship is accepted. And as Hebrews will go on to say, he's purchased a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No moth or rust can destroy this kingdom. No enemy can come in and destroy it. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and all that the prophets pointed to in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Just by way of summary, I could not not put a quote of Meredith Klein in here. So here's a quote from him, just kind of summarizing everything that we've seen. He says this, in Christ, the Davidic dynasty finds its permanent representative and embodiment. In Him, Christ, the promised everlasting kingship is attained. What has gone before was temporary and provisional. Having performed its historical purpose and made way for the divine King, it has passed away. There is only one throne of David, and since Christ has assumed His place on that throne, He occupies it forever." (laughs) And what's true of the promises of the king is also true of the promises of the kingdom. The kingdom inheritance of both Jew and Gentile believers, the church of God, is identified in Hebrews chapter 12 as Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The first earthly level and mountain has passed away, but now it is identified as this heavenly Jerusalem where the people of God worship. This is what we see in the Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the person and work of Christ, our great King. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we take this understanding of what Christ has done as our King, and how do we make application of this? A couple things we can say. Christ is not only the King, He is our King. Christ is not only the King, He is our King. Christ as God is King over all creation. He rules and reigns over all His creation, right? We believe this, we confess this. All of heaven and earth are called to bow down before His holiness holiness and worship and serve Him alone. He is a good King who has given us life and breath and everything that we could have. He is the King of the universe. And yet, in our sin we rebel. We do the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. We rebel against God. We think his authority is mute. We think his authority has no bearing on us. And so we say, forget that. I'm king. Forget your commands. Forget your laws. I'm the king. That's what we do in our sin and rebellion. We do the same thing that Adam did did. We don't like God as our ultimate king. We want to be king. We want to sit on the throne. We want to us- usurp God's kingly authority and put ourselves in his place. This is all sin. This is what rebellion is. It's not some light thing. It is rebellion against the king of the universe, God himself. And this is what our sin deserves. It's separation from God's safe presence. It's judgment for our sin. It's hell itself. This is what our sin and rebellion deserve. We are going against the king and ruler of the universe. And every sin we commit is to continue in our rebellion and only increase our pain and torment. And yet, and yet this great king is also a gracious king. He offers pardon to those that would turn from their sin and serve Him. He offers grace and mercy to those that would turn away, that would repent from their sin and trust in Him. And so the question we need to ask ourselves now is the same question that the prophet Elijah asked the people of his day. Who are you going to serve? How long will you waver between the two? If the Lord is God follow him but if it is all then follow him if god is king serve him but if he's not go do whatever you want to do he's saying choose this day whom you will serve this is the call for us we have to make a choice <laughs> he's saying stop wavering between the two choose god or choose your sin. And the call of Christ and the call of Christ our King, the one who has suffered the punishment that we deserve, is come to me. Come to me. I've forgiven your sin. I am the true King. And we have to say, and the book of Revelation tells us, that at the end of human history, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. It will either be in humble submission to Him as Savior or it will be in fearful terror to the one who will by no means clear the guilty. And so today, if Christ is your King, then our call is to serve Him, to make Him King of our lives, Lord of our lives. Our allegiance is to Him. We are to follow His commands and His laws. We don't get to create our own method of righteousness. We don't get to create what's right and what's wrong We serve and worship Him alone, and this should produce a humble submission in us. And just as we read in Psalm 51, we can confess our sins to God. We can plead to Him for mercy, knowing that He gives us mercy in Christ, but this creates a humility and a submission in us to serve Him alone, not our own sinful hearts. So we've seen today that Christ is our prophet, our priest and our king. We have no other. There's no other prophets that are going to bring forth the word of God. Christ has spoken by his Son. I'm sorry, God has spoken by his son. There's no need for priests. We have the one perfect sacrifice, and there's no need for any earthly kings because Christ has done it all. This is our hope this morning. This is the only way we can be made right with God is by someone subduing our rebellion bringing us to his heavenly kingdom and knowing that he will build his church, the temple of God, from this day till the end of the world. This is our hope as believers. So let's praise him and thank him for what he's done in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your infinite mercy. We thank you that we see in this covenant with David and the one that would come after him that, that no human being alone could fulfill your law. No one could represent us perfectly before you in our sin and in our rebellion. That we need someone who is not only the Son of Man, but one who is truly and eternally the Son of God. That He alone is the one that can come and fulfill the law for us, represent us before God, bring us to the heavenly kingdom of God, and truly bring us Sabbath rest for eternity. He is the only one that can do this, and He has done this in the person and work of Christ. And so this morning, may our hope be in Him, the great King from David, the Lord of David, who would rest at God's right hand, and purchase that rest for all his people. And so this morning, we look forward to that rest. We don't experience it in full now. We only experience it in part. And so this morning, we look forward to your heavenly kingdom that you've inaugurated in Christ that has come in part. But we look forward to the consummation in the new heavens and the new earth where all will be made new. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, and there'll be no temple in that city for God will dwell with His people forever as their holy and righteousness is brought about only by the work of Christ. We thank You and praise You for the work that You've done. We pray that we would trust in Christ alone this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Your Son, Christ. Amen.